look, I'm a big believer in finance as co-pilot in the company. And so, you know, I very much view my role as CFO of Dow as the co-pilot to the CEO. And, and I'm not a professional pilot and I'm not a hobby pilot, but I like the analogy because a co-pilot in the cockpit has to do everything that the pilot has to do. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Howard Ungerleider, the president and CFO of the Dow Chemical Company. Howard joins us on the podcast today to share his experience helping lead the complex merger and spin-out that first combined the two global giants Dow and DuPont and then split them into three independent businesses. He also explains how Dow is preparing itself for the post-pandemic world. Howard spoke with John Warner, a senior partner in our Cleveland office who co-leads our global energy and materials practice. Their discussion was recorded at a virtual event we recently hosted for senior finance executives. Several audience members also shared questions with Howard, which I had the pleasure of asking him during the session. Now, here's John. It's my privilege to introduce our next guest, Howard Ungerleiner. Howard is the president and CFO of the Dow Chemical Company, a $50 billion market cap company. As I think about Howard, a couple of things come to mind. Number one, he served as the CFO of Dow, but also the CFO of Dow DuPont in probably one of the most iconic merge spins that we've seen in our lifetime in terms of the value creation, in terms of the impact, but also in terms of the complexity. Two, he is a tremendous leader that not only brings CFO expertise, but he has led many businesses inside Dow, including their largest business, Plastics, Advanced Materials, and played a role in IR and leading IR. So it's a real privilege for me to introduce an amazing leader, an amazing person who's doing great things for the Dow Chemical Company more broadly as we speak. Well, John, all I can say is, wow, I, re- I really want to meet that guy. He sounds really good. But uh, no, thank, thank you for that introduction. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you today. So uh, thank you again. Howard, the audience is really looking forward to hearing about your perspectives on this iconic, as we talk about M&A, bird spin, and the likes. Would love just to start with a little bit of you stepping back, putting yourself in the, the room as you were thinking about, is this the right thing to do? How do we do this? How do we pull something off? like this. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, for context, Dow and DuPont, you're talking about 300 years of, uh, of corporate history, right? More than 120 years Dow. Legacy DuPont was more than 200 years old. And there was a lot of complementarity there. So we weren't really direct competitors, but in many of our businesses, we were in similar markets, but in different parts of the value chain or different applications. And so from a Dow chessboard perspective, we always looked at that combination with DuPont as one that could be very value creating for many, many years. It dates back to well before even uh, you know I was CFO. When I started in 2014 as a CFO, this dates back to the early 2000s was the first time when we started talking to see if there was any interest. Howard, ultimately, you came to a belief in an agreement this was the right thing to do. Tune the audience into the conversations. How did you come to this structure? How did you come to this was the right way to manage and think about the complementary aspects you were talking about? Yeah, I mean, you know, 
their prior CEO and our CEO met several times over the course of several years, actually several different CE rounds of CEOs. And they could just never get to a, a meeting of the minds where there was enough value creation for everyone. Uh, that really changed fundamentally when Ed Breen came in as the CFO of DuPont. And he had a reach out from you know, the legacy Dow CEO, Andrew Liveris, and the two of them agreed to meet and started talking pretty quickly thereafter. That was in about September, October of 2015. And from that moment till mid to late December is when we actually announced the transaction. From a legacy Dow perspective, what got us very excited is the ag space. That was kind of the thought starter of why it made sense. So we had an ag business, Dow AgriSciences at the time, which was 80% crop protection or chemistry related, only 20% seeds and traits. We were one of the very small number of companies that could actually innovate in the germplasm space and bring new traits to the marketplace with some of the innovations that we had developed. But we didn't have scale in terms of seed market share. And when you looked at the ag chessboard at the time, DuPont was almost the complete opposite of the Dow ag business. They were 80% seeds and traits. They were only 20% chemistry. So it was a natural fit. And both businesses actually were headquartered in the Midwest. Dow AgroSciences was headquartered in Indianapolis. And then the pioneer business for DuPont was headquartered in Iowa. And so they shared a lot of cultural attributes, obviously very complementary. And then we thought about the rest of the businesses, and we were both big players in a lot of different chemistry sets. And like I talked about, different parts of the value chain, but very similar markets or applications. So the original thought was get together, you'd put the ag businesses together, you'd form a great ag company, the leading ag company, and then you'd bring together the legacy Dow and the legacy DuPont and create one material slash specialty chemicals. As we were going through the process, and I don't think it's any surprise to anyone, both Legacy Dow at the time and Legacy DuPont at the time, we each had our own activist investor that were in the stock as well. And so they were obviously part of the dialogue, as well as a lot of discussions with the, the management of both companies and the boards of both companies. We evolved our thinking and we decided to create three companies, a leading material science company, a leading specialty company, and then, of course, the leading ag company that later became known as Corteva. And, and Howard, how did you think about this merge spin in light of investors and what they desired? How did you get them on board and getting them thinking about this is the right transaction to do? You know, I think both Ed and the Dow Legacy team, we had a pretty similar approach when it came to dealing with or interacting with activists, which is engage. They're no more important or less important than any of the other large investors. And so you, you treat them with that same respect. So you can only share with them what you share with the others in the public domain. But it's a chance for you to listen and learn their perspective. And then you share your point of view. And Howard, some people would say, holy cow, you're, you were the CFO of Dow. Now you were the CFO of Dow DuPont. It took you four years to get this whole thing consummated. How did you think about all of these regulatory and challenges to go make this thing happen? Look, I'm a big believer in finance as co-pilot in the company. And so you know, I very much view my role as CFO of Dow as the co-pilot to the CEO. And, and I'm not a professional pilot and I'm not a hobby pilot, but I like the analogy because a co-pilot in the cockpit has to do everything that the pilot has to do. You have to know how to fly the plane. You have to know how to navigate. You have to learn how to take off and land, talk to and work with your passengers and the crew on the aircraft. 
And, you know, we carried that through the merged entity. We really had a choice. So we'd bring two companies together, create one company, and then later spin out three, or immediately upon close, go from two companies to three divisions with a very, very thin holding company structure up top. And that's what we did. So there were essentially, there were no employees of Dow DuPont. The officers of Dow DuPont were the two CEOs of Legacy Dow, Legacy DuPont. My role, the three COOs of the divisions that were going to become the CEOs of the new companies and the two general counsels. And so it was a very light touch steering team or holding company structure. But then immediately on day one, what that allowed us to do is start operating as if we were three companies, even though we were embedded in one corporate structure. And that took a lot of concern out of folks. So, you know, it took about 90 days to make sure everybody knew exactly where they were going to land. And that one decision really helped streamline the decision-making and figure out on the RACI diagram who was responsible for what, who was accountable for what. Howard, as part of that sort of going from two to three, you announced some big synergy targets, something like $4 billion of cost synergies. You know, in light of the complexity of going from two to three, small corporate structure, how did you drive and ensure you could capture these $4 billion of synergies that you had announced was a big upside from this deal? Yeah, we approached it, you know, I would say both from the top down and then the bottoms up. You know, the top down was the easy part, right, in terms of looking at a couple of different metrics. I mean, Dow had been in a lot of transactions. So you kind of knew roughly what your percent of revenue targets would be for top-down cost synergies. And then we had the corporate functional view as well between the legacy Dow structure and the legacy DuPont structure. And, you know, I would say that the teams worked pretty collaboratively together. The one area where we decided to use a clean team approach was in procurement. You talked about the regulatory uncertainty, and you never know if something's going to go wrong. So you really don't want to contaminate too many of your folks with competitive information. So we hired some third parties, and then we relied on a few retirees on both the legacy DuPont and legacy Dow side that we could create a clean team. They worked together to analyze all of the procurement contracts, whether it's raw material or logistics or MRO or you know IT. So as soon as we had day one of the merged entity, that clean team sat together in a lockdown session with the procurement team of Legacy Dow and Legacy DuPont, and they went through the playbook. That was a really nice way to go. I would definitely encourage a clean team for procurement. But outside of procurement, you know, you could do a lot just by getting the, the folks together and you can share a reasonable amount of information even before you close. And I definitely would do that so that you can hit the ground running on day one and actually start to achieve the synergies. You know, the bottoms up was a little bit more difficult because now you're negotiating in a way with yourselves because, you know, everybody wants a low target. So that's where we had the Dow DuPont steering team that really was able to be the governing body to make any decisions where there was a conflict. And we would break the ties with those eight people at the steering team level. As you talked about the cockpit, I mean, you were in the cockpit in two roles, right? CFO of Dow DuPont and CFO of the future Dow. How did you manage both roles in a way that was in a very difficult, challenging environment of getting the full synergies, but understanding making Dow successful going forward? 
Yeah, I mean, look, the overarching focus was really enterprise value, right? And that really, that mindset drove all the decision-making. What was the right long-term thing to, to drive enterprise value for all Dow DuPont shareholders? Because at the point we were merged, we were Dow DuPont, right? There was no more Dow stock or DuPont stock. It was Dow DuPont stock. And so our job was to maximize long-term enterprise value for Dow DuPont, which ultimately was going to be captured by Dow plus DuPont plus Corteva. From a workload standpoint, I was CFO of Old Dow, and I was going to become president and CFO of the Material Science Division, which became the new Dow. So I did streamline the org structure inside the Material Science Division and gave a little bit more day-to-day responsibility to some of the Material Science finance team. Because it, it took you know a fair amount of energy, as you can imagine, to make sure that you were doing the right thing also for future DuPont and future Corteva and just work through all the regulatory issues. That's how you've been through it. But if a CFO on this conversation was about to go through it, what advice would you give? I, I would say take a deep breath and uh, make sure the effort is going to be worth it from a value creation standpoint. Because any big deal is certainly going to take some time. You mentioned it yourself. I mean, we announced the transaction December 15, and we actually didn't spin out the companies until 2019. We merged in 2017. So it was almost a four-year process. So fundamentally, the value has to be there versus what else you could do over that time frame. I would say that's one piece of advice. The other piece of advice I would say is don't think in terms of one outcome. Think in terms of scenarios. For me, Anything that we do, we think about what's the best case scenario, what's the worst case scenario, and what's the most likely. And then honestly, what I do is I take the best case and I throw it away because if the best case happens, then it's not a problem. You're feeling really good. But the reality is most likely the value is somewhere between your most likely case and the worst case. Those are really your two bookends. And make sure that even if the, on the worst case side, either you've adjusted for risk or you're still feeling comfortable and confident that the value creation and that it's worth it in the, in the worst case. That would be uh, another thing that I would say. Also, from a regulatory standpoint, you know, the regulatory environment has only gotten more difficult, more challenging. The idea of 10 or 15 years ago where one jurisdiction maybe would take the lead and the other regional jurisdictions would follow along is not the case anymore. So in, in our case, you know, we had the U.S., we had China, uh, we had the EU, and then we had Brazil. And every one of those four jurisdictions are going to want something specific for their jurisdiction. So you've got to war game that out and model that out. Make sure that even with the remedies that that the, each regulator may require, you still feel good about the uh, the decision. It looks like Sean has a question. We've got a question from the audience related to how you communicated the value of the deal, not just to investors, but also within the organizations and got people excited about what turned out to be a fairly long period of time. How did you keep everybody excited? And what were some of the milestones along the way that you used to communicate the progress that you were making? Yeah. I mean, look, I think the investors were probably the easier point because at Dow and DuPont, you could say it nicely and say we were both diversified industrial companies, or you could say we were a conglomerate. And at least at that point, conglomerates in the industrial space were not exactly seen 
very positively about the investment community. So the, the value proposition of the investors is you're going to take these two very strong, very capable legacy and you know diversified industrial companies, and you're going to create three streamlined industry leaders with the best-in-class cost position, with best-in-class products and market positions. And then you're going to achieve these cost synergies and then these growth synergies that were going to really unlock a lot of value creation. And so the more challenging one was the employees. But in, in a way, all those investor messages also was very beneficial to the employees. Because if you were in ag, whether you were in Dow or you were in DuPont, you were not going to get all the capital or all the resources that you would need because we had a lot of mouths to feed, right? Each one of those legacy companies, you were doing everything from commodities to diversified to specialties to agriculture. And so the value proposition for the employees is you're going to work for a focused, streamlined leader, and that's all that you're going to do every day. The point of the length of time it takes is it's really important to communicate, right? Over-communicate. You can't communicate often enough or in many different ways. And so you have to set out milestones and keep everybody informed along the way of what is going to happen when. That was one of the things that really drove us to that two uh, immediately becoming three was really about the employee morale and motivation is making sure that we didn't, because we knew we were going to be in the merge state for probably 18 to 24 months because of all the regulatory work that we would have had. So we felt like it was really important to go to the three to minimize the disruption. Great. Thank you. You know, if you said somebody's about to do a spin and unlock value through this, how did you think about breaking up these two companies into three and, and all the tactical things that had to happen to make that work? We handled it as a steering team. We actually did also hire another third party, but it was more of an execution-based entity to really help us with the accounting carve-outs, as well as the tax matters agreements, which are key. And then obviously, we used some legal outside resources as well for all the remedies. You know, the Dow DuPont steering team chaired all of those decisions. We essentially were meeting, leading up to the merge state, we were meeting monthly. Uh, when we got into the merge state, we would then meet weekly as we were going through the project. We would typically take once a month for each topic. And so we'd rotate topics every week as we were going through that. Uh, and then from a remedy perspective, if there was a decision to be made on a remedy, for example, we would handle that at the steering team level. But then the legacy company that owned that business unit, because we didn't change any of the legal entity structures, we kept the Dow Tower and the DuPont Tower, right, for the most uh, for most of the way through the merged entity. DuPont, for example, needed to sell a chunk of their chemistry business. The DuPont legal and finance team did that. And then any time there were decisions to make, those decisions would get elevated to Dow DuPont so that the officers of Dow DuPont could opine on that. So, I mean, I, my, my input would be set up your governance structure, bring in the resources that you need, Make sure that the people that are working around that governance, those are full-time roles. Those cannot be part-time, but you know, you're know you only talking about probably 25 uh, people or so that are full-time roles. And then you just work the list. And that allows you to make sure that uh, very little will slip through the cracks and that you're, you're covering all of, the, your, all of your variables and all three, at least in our case, all three dimensions for the three companies. 
how important is portfolio management and shareholder value creation as you've gone through this? And, and what advice would you give to others as they think about that? John, I personally think it's extremely critical. I mean, you got to start with the portfolio and ultimately you start with the strategy. What are you trying to achieve? You know, in our case, from a Dow perspective, it was a focused portfolio. It was market leading positions. It was global scale. I would say we brought then on top of that benchmarking. We said we want it to be the first quartile in in all respects from a cost structure standpoint. So you benchmark wherever you have a gap, then you set the target of what you're trying to achieve. And then, you know, the other thing for us was being a a more disciplined allocator of capital. You know, I think that was uh, very well and continues uh, to be very well received from an investor lens perspective. You know, we went from really scaling back the amount of capital that we were deploying into instead of going into big, big projects, call it, you know, using a baseball analogy, trying to hit a home runs, and we went to more uh, singles and doubles, lower risk, faster payback, uh, higher return projects that'll you know generate a higher likelihood on a risk adjusted basis of higher earnings growth and higher cash flow. And then we set a target from a shareholder remuneration standpoint that 65% of our net income would go back to shareholders, primarily in the form of dividends. And we'll use a, uh, about 20% as a flywheel in the form of stock buyback. And then we put the other 35% back into the company for long-term growth. An audience member then asked Howard how he and his team navigated the crisis and which changes that they made during the crisis were likely to persist after the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think we were very fortunate in, in many respects. So we already had a pretty robust enterprise risk management process that the, the management team led. And then we used with our board and our audit committee on a regular basis. Not, not to say that we necessarily predicted a pandemic, but with the avian flu and some of the other experiences, we already had our playbook of what we were going to do. This one was obviously much worse. I would also say we were pretty well positioned because we're a global company. We definitely saw what was happening in China in the very first quarter of 2020. And the Asia Pacific, we have a regional crisis. We have regional crisis management teams that will initiate. And the president of Dow Asia Pacific chairs that team. They started meeting on a regular weekly basis in the first quarter. And then after about a month, when we realized this was not likely going away, but this was going to get worse, we initiated our corporate crisis management team. And I co-chair that. You know, look, from a finance perspective, first things first is you protect your liquidity, right? And so, you know, as as all of my finance colleagues know, the banks all want to lend you money when you don't need it. Uh, And when you need it, uh, they have maybe a slightly different point of view. So I think as part of our enterprise risk management approach, you know, you don't wait till you have a crisis to make sure you've got the right liquidity. So the way the way we think about liquidity in Dow is at least three layers. So you've got the base layer, which is the revolver, which you really don't ever want to touch. But we have a five-year, $5 billion revolver. Uh, And, you know, that's really there just in case of an emergency. And then you break glass and you tap the revolver. Uh, We did not tap the revolver. We also have the next layer, which is we have committed bilateral lines, uh, which are outside of the revolver, which we can tap. Then we have AR securitization, which we only use if it's economically advantaged, but typically it's just there as another layer of protection. And then we have the uncommitted lines, uh, you know, which the banks aren't committed to fund, but in, in reasonable times they will fund. So what we did 
once we realized it was going to be a bigger global impact, we immediately tapped the uncommitted lines, you know, figuring let's do that. And we put some extra money in the bank and we were able to weather that storm without going into any of the other committed lines and and tapping the revolver. I think the other thing that you have to do, we immediately, like everybody else in March, you had to shut down. So you immediately start thinking about not just working from home, but how do you do a quarterly close from home? We were very fortunate. We've always been an early investor in our industry in IT. And so we had the ability to do the close uh, remotely, even though we had never tried it, which is, you know, a learning, you know, you got to make sure you're doing a few more tabletop exercises along the way after things normalize. But we were able to do that very, very seamlessly, you know, and then we used the crisis team to really continue because we were deemed essential in almost every jurisdiction around the world of how we were going to run our assets and maintain our operations for our customers. And then we've used that same crisis management team to manage the return to the workplace. And, you know, like many of my peers, I'm sure we're in various states of return, but we're making good progress. Certainly, we had the pre-pandemic world. We had the pandemic world. How do you see you leading in the post-pandemic world and thinking about, you know, the new world? Yeah, I think digital is probably a big differentiator for Dow while we were in the pandemic. And I think it's going to be a big differentiator for every company as you, you know, as you look for ways to innovate. You know, we, we, we've done a lot with RPA. Since 2018, we've taken about 25,000 hours of time away from folks through automation, through analytics, through robotics. I mean, we used to, in you know, the auditing function, it used to be a random sample. Now with uh, data analytics, you can do 100% census and then have the analytics point you in the direction where there might be an issue. And the same uh, is true in the tax space. You know, a lot of uh, tax jurisdictions are getting more aggressive. And so, you know, by, by bringing in automation, using data analytics from a tax perspective, it allows you to stay ahead of the curve. And then really broadly from a customer experience. I mean, we're a B2B company. And thankfully, we did billions of uh, revenue turnover transactions on our Dow.com portal before the pandemic. And then we've only accentuated that through the pandemic. And then we've utilized technology to do contactless customer visits, contactless trade shows, virtual trade shows. And we're also taking that technology inside our plant gates as well. We've been using drones and robotics to minimize, for example, confined space entry in in places where historically could have been a hazardous situation for a human being, and you actually get more accurate, repetitive analysis of some of the confined space entries, and you have a record. You you have a, a digital record of that confined space entry, so if there's an issue down the road, you can go back and look at the digital archive, and it's been really helpful for us. And I would say, if anything, like most of us, the pandemic really forced us to make decisions faster with maybe less accuracy to the right of the decimal place. And I would say that is hard for finance people, right? We're we're typically very comfortable to the right of the decimal place. And I think this whole pandemic that the world has gone through has really forced everybody. And if you're not there, then I would get there. Get yourself to the left of the decimal place. Maybe just switching gear. You've had the privilege of being in that pilot seat for a while. As you step back, what personal satisfaction do you get out of the role you play? And what advice would you give to others 
who are going to sit at your desk at many other leading companies about being a great CFO? What would you tell them? I get a lot of satisfaction. I just love the role because uh, basically you have the ability to touch every part of the company from developing the strategy together with the management team and then uh, working with the board and making sure that you've got the right governance level to working with the investors to make sure they understand the strategy to working inside the company to, to execute the strategy. And even working with the rating agencies as an example, you know, I, I, find, I find that uh, enjoyable, I guess, tongue in cheek because it's a, it's a little bit like negotiating with the post office to stay open after they want to close. The advice that I would give would be simple, be curious, make sure that you have a point of view, have a point of view that's based on some logic, some rationale and some data. Ask more questions. You know, my, my, my grandmother used to say you got two, two eyes, two ears and one mouth. And so internally use them in that proportion. So uh, uh, ask a lot of questions internally before you make a lot of statements internally um, and be curious and, uh, you know, seek to learn. And uh, if you do that, I think you'll have a great time internally and and you'll have the best chance of success uh, for your company as well. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. A transcript will be made available on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 60 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback and an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you would like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the bottom of our podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, follow us at MCK Strategy on Twitter, and connect with us on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.